So I initially thought that I was going to be like the one person that would be like dancing awkwardly around everybody else having a good time. But I shortly realized that I had this wonderful ability as the only sober person. And that ability is being party mom. (laughs) Because there's something that's distinctly wonderful about being universally loved. Like I remember like my brother used to host like ragers and I would come home and I would like see these ragers happening and I would like see all like these like girls that were like completely drunk and I'm like, okay, so who sees a spinning room? And like six hands would go up in the air and I'd be like, follow me. And we would all like hold each other's hair back while they were like throwing up in the toilet and I would get them some bread and I would tuck them in and I'd be like, sleep this off, we'll get you home. Yeah. And there's something really nice about being in that position where you can care for people because like, then they're like, like you're the angel. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Odds and Friends. I'm your host, Noelle Blood, and this is the podcast where my friends come on and tell me the interesting stories from their lives. Today we have my friend Ren back on. You'll remember that Ren was on right when I first started the podcast a while back talking about what it's like to be Serbian, and now they're going to talk to us about sobriety and substance use. Uh, I think it's a pretty interesting conversation. Hopefully you'll think so, too. So let's get right into it. All right, so why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Ren. I've been on the podcast before talking about being Serbian. But... Very popular episode, actually. Oh, that's great to hear. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, so yeah. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, so today we're going to talk about sobriety. Yes. And I am not sober, so how do you define sobriety? So sobriety is determined a variety of ways, actually. So depending upon the sort of faction that you're in, sobriety can mean a bunch of different things. So I've been to NA meetings Mm -hmm. where people still regularly drink alcohol. Because NA is Narcotics Anonymous, right? Yes. Uh, So they'll be like, oh yeah, I've been off meth for like five years, but like I still get super drunk every night. And I'm like, whoa, what? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, good for you. Like, if you enjoy, I don't know. If you're you're doing fine, that's none of my business. Uh, And then... uh, some meetings, like, a lot of AA meetings that I've been to are a lot stricter in terms of, like, no drugs, no alcohol, no weed. Mm-hmm. But then they're like, oh, yeah, but we all smoke cigarettes because you can't quit everything at once. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the big trope, right, is, like, at AA meetings they have the black coffee and everyone's mm-hmm. chain smoking. Yeah, so, yeah, because if you quit everything at once, you'll die. Dan yeah. knew somebody who tried to do that. My, my fiancé knew somebody that tried to do that. And he went to the doctor's office after quitting everything. And he was like, yeah, doc, I just feel really terrible. Like, my whole body aches. And I've just been, like, really sick for the past couple of days. The doc's like, okay, do you smoke? Oh, no, I quit that. Do you drink? Nope, I quit that. This, the same day? <laughs> oh, I'm not going to tell you to have a cigarette, but <laughs> maybe. Uh, he, he's still sober to this day, as far as I understand. But whoo yeah, that would take some major inner strength, I think. Oh, absolutely. I quit alcohol in February 2017, and I quit weed the same time as well. My sobriety date is February 15th. Okay. Uh, 
And then the year afterward, as my year anniversary, I decided to quit smoking cigarettes. Nice. Uh, <laughs> which was not fun at all. No. It was almost easier for me to quit alcohol. Like, because alcohol, I didn't have as bad of a chemical dependence on. Mm-hmm. I just had an intense psychological dependence on it. Yeah. But with cigarettes, I had, like, no psychological dependence on it, but I had a completely chemical dependence on them. Yeah. Like, when I quit smoking back in 2015, it's been a while, um, I used nicotine gum. So that helps mm-hmm. a lot with, like, whatever the physical sensation was, but, like, the, the psychological aspect. Because it was, like, after I eat, what do I do now? I'm like, I can't have a cigarette. Like, oh, I'm hanging out with friends, and I'm a little overwhelmed, and I want to step outside, but I don't have a cigarette. Like, oh, yeah. It was... It was there was so much of the habitual aspect that was really hard for me. But, like, with alcohol, I don't really ever drink anymore. But, like, when I do, like, I went out to a bar with a friend earlier this week, and I forgot what bar culture is like. Because of <laughs> quarantine, like, being fully vaccinated, we were at Night Owl, and I was like, it's so loud here. There's so many people to look at. Like, this is insane. Like, I forgot humanity from being inside. But just, like, watching people get really drunk and really loud in public was something that I didn't miss too much from quarantine but it was just a trip to see oh it's wild like like throughout quarantine i was like can you guys believe that we used to be in the same room as these other disease ridden beings (laughs) we used to spew particles at each other (laughs) oh i love spewing particles (laughs) but yeah like there's a huge amount like this is one of the things that like i was talking to my stepsister my stepsister is now God, I want to say 17. She's a high schooler. Okay. Uh, and way cooler than I will ever be by virtue of being a high schooler. Yeah. Teenagers are so cool. Teenager- so threatening. <laughs> I mean, your little shirt. It's a medium. <laughs> uh, but yeah, her name's Zoe. She's awesome. Uh, but we were talking about like drugs, having the drug talk. I feel like I have a better drug talk than a lot of adults. Because adults will be like, don't smoke weed or you'll overdose. Whereas I'll be like, oh, like, weed isn't even the worst of them. I've been on LSD. (laughs) I nearly poked out both my eyeballs. (laughs) Dan had to physically restrain me. (laughs) And then, like, Zoe's there, like, got it. We'll never do drugs. Okay. (laughs) See, like, that's the opposite. Knowing more people who do more things as an adult, like... People are always like, oh, well, you, you've done this. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you done that? And I'm like, no, I've never taken mushrooms. No, I've never done LSD, and I'm not interested. And they're like, why? It's magical. You'll learn so much about yourself. And I'm like, yeah, I can meditate without yeah. having to be tripping balls. Like, I can learn about myself and have an open heart without tripping balls. Like, I don't mm-hmm. have to have LSD to be an open-minded person. People act like... You do. Just, like, you have to have alcohol to have fun. You have to have mushrooms or LSD to, like, know yourself. And I'm like, I really don't think that's true. Like, here's the thing. So, I also have a psych degree, officially. I have a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from UNO, and I'm desperately trying to get a job with it, if anybody thinks I'm funny. (laughs) Uh, And one of the things that is, uh, has recently become uh, sort of common practice in the field has been uh, the understanding that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is very beneficial for people with PTSD, but here's the caveat to that. So, MDMA is ecstasy, Mm -hmm. for those of us who uh, only know street names. Yeah. (laughs) And MDMA uh, seems to break down psychological walls really well. So people who have a difficult time treating PTSD because... Let's say they've been in combat for a while and like all of their combat training was basically how to repress their emotions so they don't know how to get in touch with themselves. 
they have a really hard time going through therapy for PTSD. So MDMA, when used in a controlled environment where they give a patient a dose and they go through a multi-hour therapy session with them, and then the next couple of weeks they go through therapy talking about that dosage experience and then they do it again eventually, that environment has been shown to be really helpful for people with treatment-resistant PTSD. So I want to start out by saying that Drugs can be a fantastic experience when done in a controlled environment with a professional. Right. Cat on the podcast. Cat on the podcast. This is jazzercise. But yeah, so drugs can be a very important experience. And I mean, like, there are some people in AA who say things like, oh, like, I've been off my depression meds for, like, three years now. And I'm like, no, no, that's a good one. You smoked crack and you're quitting, like, your important meds? So don't do that, uh, would be my advice. (laughs) Well, because there's that meme going around with everyone talking about legalizing marijuana again about, like, the people holding up the signs, and Mm -hmm. it's like, because of CBD and THC, I was able to get off of Zoloft and blah, 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 and I'm like, you know, like, I think it's very dangerous to say, like, weed is a substitute for your brain chemicals that your doctor has proven help yes. you live a successful life. Like everyone acts like um, antidepressants and SSRIs and all that are bad, like as bad as smoking cigarettes or something like that. And it's just. Yeah. So on that note, I would say that marijuana is certainly not as bad of a substance as something like alcohol, which may I add is literally poison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not an exaggeration. Uh, you are literally intoxicating you're poisoning yourself Mm -hmm. when you drink alcohol the same cannot necessarily be said of marijuana but this idea that cbd especially as a cure-all tends to overlook facts like cbd can interfere with medication absorption and it can interfere with meds that you need to like save your life so like while cbd or thc may have benefits that haven't been proven yet in clinical trials they do also have risks associated with them So the idea that, like, oh, you can just, like, take CBD or you can just take THC and, like, cure all your problems, absolutely not. In the words of Dr. Sidney McElroy, uh, cure-alls cure nothing. Mm. It's very important to be super skeptical when you hear something like, God, I was at an undisclosed CBD shop in town, and they handed me a laminated sheet showing me how different products of theirs could cure like autism and cancer and they had like a wheel with like various colors and they're like well this tincture is really good for like this and it was the same substance like they weren't selling like oh here's one drug for autism here's another drug for cancer they're like no this variety of cbd is better for cancer and i was like that's that's not medically validated (laughs) at all and that's so dangerous because of exactly what you said where people will be like well i'm gonna treat this naturally and i'm gonna get rid of the thing that like has been keeping me alive right exactly i'm gonna get this like like if you're for example smoking weed on the side and also taking your antidepressants and mitigating your conditions normally as you would that's probably fine talk to your doctor about it i guess yeah but if you're completely getting rid of your proven medications in favor of an unproven medication, that's where the danger lies. That's where you got to be like, just because it's quote unquote natural doesn't mean that it's better than a medication like fluoxetine or uh, 
uh, Lamotrigine. Lamotrigine saved my life, and I would not go off it without a fight. Like, yeah. every time I talk to a doctor about med changes, I'm like, don't take away my Lamotrigine. I yes. need it. I love it. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, medication is so good. Like, people always be like, people always be like, uh, oh, m- medication is a crutch. Like, oh, if you're, like, on antidepressants, that's a crutch. I've used a wheelchair for multiple years and crutches for multiple years, and let me just say that that's not a bad thing. Right, like, it's there to help you. A crutch is an assistance tool. A crutch medication facilitates. medication is an assistance tool. Yeah, a crutch is a device that facilitates ability when you have none. Mm-hmm. Your options aren't either walk normally or walk with crutches. Your options are don't walk or walk with crutches. And it's the same thing for, like, depression meds and stuff. Like, yeah, it's a crutch. It's either I'm depressed all the time and I hate being alive, or I am not depressed all the time. <laughs> I am still struggling with coping mechanisms, but we are getting there, baby. Yeah. So, like, is that when you were drinking, is that what alcohol was for you was sort of like a crutch to react? Because it's like... I've never had a I've never had a problem with drugs or alcohol like as far as addiction issues go um or use issues. So, is that what it is? Like so, where it starts from? There's kind of this philosophy in 12-step programs where the first step is like to decide whether or not you have a problem. So, a lot of the shorthand that people talk about is are you unable to go a day without drinking and or can you not just stop at one drink? And for me, it was definitely the second one more than the first one, because I was talking with Daniel, my partner, who's not an alcoholic, and he and I were having this argument because he would drink a lot sometimes, and I was like, well, how do you know you're not an alcoholic? And eventually we got to this understanding that I believed that every time I went out to the bar and didn't get shit-faced, that the night was a failure. Okay, well, I kind of feel that way. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, if I'm going to drink, I'm going to try to catch a buzz. Not get shit-faced, but I'm like, if I'm going to have one drink, I might as well have two. Otherwise, I'm just going to be sleepy and cranky, and I want to get slightly turned. So, but... here's the thing, is that for me, <laughs> it was like way more than that. Yeah. So, I would be the designated driver. Oh, no. <laughs> and I would be like, I can squeeze in five drinks and getting sober into two hours. Oh, no. <laughs> and drive everybody home safely. It's like the same kind of like, like, you know, when you're like, uh, you know, when you're like staying up late at night and you know that like at eight in the morning you have to go to work mm-hmm. and you're like, I can sleep eight hours into <laughs> that's that's how I was with like getting sober from being drunk was like I had like this delusional thinking and there's so many delusional thoughts that you have when you're an alcoholic like I would actually unironically say to people I'm a good drunk driver <laughs> I'd be like I am as far as drunk drivers go <laughs> I'm the best <laughs> I'm the best of them all and it is not the alcohol talking yeah. <laughs> So there's, like, so many delusional thoughts that you end up having when you're, like, deep into alcoholism about, like, how you cope. And one of those things also involves, like, social facilitation. So we were just talking about weddings earlier, and, yeah. like, I ended up getting banned from a wedding group. The, that's, oh, the that's it, I'm wedding shaming? Yeah. So, I love that group, though. <laughs> oh, it's, like, so full of tea. I loved it. But, like, at one point, like, somebody was like, this bitch decided to have a dry wedding? Like, oh, my God, like, how tacky. <laughs> and I said, like, 
first of all, there's been a, like in the news, there's been a recent rise in alcoholic liver disease in young women, like 40 year old women and 30 year old women are having like these horrifically like corroded livers because they'll be like, oh, like I'm a wine mom. Like don't talk to me until I've had a bottle a day. Yeah. Like people will like down like so much alcohol and then in like culture, it's normalized. Like (laughs) it's, it's, it's wild because it'll be like, yeah, that's totally normal. And like alcohol companies pay for research to like fall into that as well. They'll be like, you know, a glass of red wine is like so good for you. Like it's like full of antioxidants. Let me put this into perspective. Everybody hates smokers because smokers are dirty, disgusting people. Right. Who just have lungs full of tar and are dying of cancer every single day. Exactly. That stigma about smoking. Yeah. And <clears throat> as far as I recall, maybe you need to do adding in post, uh, a bottle of wine has the same amount of carcinogens as like five cigarettes. Hmm. And like people don't even consider that. They're like, no, no, no. Wine is fine. You can get cancer from drinking. Yeah. You like, can get cancer from anything, but, like, especially true. any kind of intoxicant, you have to weigh those risks. Exactly. And so, like, you know, in moderation, that's fine. Like, if you're having one glass of wine to have a party, or you're, like, not drinking until all of your friends are in the room and you're mm-hmm. having a grand time together, you're weighing the risks. If you're, you know, saving your smoking for, like, enjoying a cigar with friends, you're weighing the risks. Mm-hmm. But, like, you can't just straight up deny that alcohol is terrible it's it's poison it's literal poison i heard this comedian they'd be like you know if you stop drinking like people get like super shocked that you're not drinking literal poison but like if you said like oh i don't drink water people would be like yeah yeah i don't drink water either it tastes nasty i only drink soda i think of this jim gaffigan bit where he's like i don't really drink and it's not because i'm an alcoholic i just don't really like to drink and it's i think about other substances people could respond to like oh did you want mayonnaise on your sandwich oh no i don't use mayonnaise oh well is it okay for me to use mayonnaise? <laughs> is it gonna upset you if I have some mayonnaise? And it's, that's what I think about when you're just like, no, I'm not drinking. People act like you're weird for not joy. Again, it's like, what are we, 19 years old? Like, you're not in the club if you're not having a glass of wine with dinner. It's so Yeah, weird. and I think my favorite one of that is, like, the John Mulaney bit where, thank God he just got out of rehab. Mm-hmm. I hope he's doing good. Yeah. But he told people that he doesn't drink. <laughs> he was saying to people, I have a Nuva ring in that fridge. Would that be good for you? Like, they completely forget. But yeah, we have this culture around drinking, which is so much more damaging than an individual drinking problem. Because an individual drinking problem is, like, one person. But a culture of drinking is, like, this society that enables this and is like, no, it's completely normal mm-hmm. to have a drinking problem. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I ended up getting banned from the group uh, by an admin whose last name on Facebook was Rose. So I wonder <laughs> if she has a drinking problem. <laughs> yeah, that like the idea of like you're glamorous when you drink, just like it used to be with smoking. Like mm-hmm. you have a cigarette because you're glamorous, but now it's like no, you don't smoke, but you have your rose because it's glamorous. Like rose is disgusting. I'm just gonna put that out there. I do not <laughs> like pink wines, but like I just think that that. Is it the worst of both worlds? Would, would that be a good, an apt 
description. Yeah, I just, I think about, like, whenever I'm at, like, a hotel, I watch actual TV, because, you know, otherwise we just use, like, Hulu and Netflix, so we don't have ads. Mm -hmm. But then you'll see, like, a beer commercial, and everyone's out at the bar having a good time, and everyone's beautiful and skinny, and it makes me think of back in the day when you used to have, like, a magazine, and you'd see, like, cigarette ads, and everyone's skinny and beautiful and having a great time at, like, a rooftop party with a fucking Newport in their hand. And you'd never see that now, but you still see these commercials for alcohol, like, it's not equally dangerous and, and that's what i think is interesting and they'll always be at the bottom like please drink responsibly like that's not what like you're saying that in the ads but you're making all of your revenue from people having alcoholism and right. binge drinking disorder exactly uh so so we were talking about whether alcohol is a coping mechanism for you yes so Actually, the way that I ended up getting with Daniel was largely alcohol facilitated. Oh, really? And we had a problem with that early in our relationship because... You take a breath in. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan and I met it online, and I had been, like, pseudo-dating this person that, like... We started dating because their ex was forcing them to have sex despite them being asexual... And my ex was like, yeah, like, asexual people should, like, be forced out. So we were, like, we were, like, spite dating, if that makes sense. <laughs> we were like, we're gonna not have sex together. It's gonna be amazing. <laughs> so, like, we didn't, we didn't really have any particular connection. And, like, he's in a wonderful relationship now, so I'm happy for him. Uh, but uh, we pseudo-dated for, like, a month out of spite. And I realized kind of toward the end of that month that I really liked Dan. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting drunk at a party in order to, like, FaceTime him and tell them that I liked him. And Dan, like, ended up, like, opening up to me later. And he was like, you know, that was nice and all that we, like, ended up figuring out that we both liked each other from that moment. But, like, you needed to get drunk to tell me that you liked me? Like, what is this? And it, like, just came off as super dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And then when I got sober years later from that moment... <laughs> Because, you know what they say, on average, people try to get sober, like, eight times. Yeah. So when I, like, actually made an honest effort to get sober years later, I realized that that was a huge part of what I used alcohol for, was as a social facilitator, and more importantly, as an excuse. And I'd seen this done before when I was kind of researching abuse. I discovered the statistic that people act when they're drunk the way that they respond in a survey that believe that most people are when they're drunk. So if you respond to a survey that says, how do you believe that alcohol affects people with, I believe it makes them more violent, you are significantly more likely to be more violent. Yeah, I always think about, you know, bad house parties that we've had in the last few years. Not we, but our friend group. Mm -hmm. And people are always, like, so quick to say... Oh, it didn't mean anything. They were drunk. But I've always firmly believed that how people act when they're drunk is how they want to act. Yeah. But they don't have that excuse to just be violent or to be an asshole or to be, like, sexually voracious or whatever out-of-bounds thing that they may be doing. But then when they have a drink in their hand, suddenly it's like, oh, it wasn't me. It was the alcohol talking. Like, no, it was you fully. Yeah. And there's actually been research on that as well. So, like, if you look at men that beat their wives when they're drunk... They always beat their wives in places where it's easy for clothes to cover up the bruises. Mm -hmm. So if somebody was truly unhinged when they were drunk and unable to control themselves, they would punch their wife in the face. 
they would like harm their wife in a way that was obvious. They would be way more likely to leave bruises. But magically when you're drunk, you have this ability to control yourself just enough so that you know, you don't truly sabotage yourself. Right. And that's because it's not an act of being out of control. You know, people will be like, oh, I was blacked out. When you are actively blacking out, you still have full control over yourself. You just don't remember it later. Right. It's not like somebody possesses you. Right. So these guys that beat their wives have pretty much entirely proved that the way that you act when you're drunk is the way that you act when you have an excuse for your behavior. Right. And that happened to me to obviously a lesser extent because my yeah. stakes were just asking out the guy I like. Yeah. And not beating my wife. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, so like when did you know that it was time to stop? So on February 14th, 2017, I and a couple of friends ended up having LSD and weed together to, you know, like, celebrate Valentine's Day, quote-unquote. Like, it was just an excuse to do drugs. And I ended up having a terrible experience. Like, when it comes to LSD, everybody talks about, like, oh, it's, like, life-changing. It's, like, so, it's so good for you. Uh, it can also be terrible like, there's so many people that go into an LSD trip and kill themselves while they're in the trip. Hmm. Like, they don't necessarily, like, overdose when they die on LSD. They, like, harm themselves, and that's how they die on LSD. Yeah. Uh, which is why it's very important to have a babysitter. If you are ever going to do drugs, do drugs responsibly. Make sure that there's somebody in the room to take care of you. Who is preferably sober. Oh, they need to be sober, yeah. <laughs> or at the very least, like mildly buzzed like some sort of like way more in control of themselves right. than you are so in this experience i ended up like trying to take my eyes out and like i ended up waking up like half naked on a couch and i was tripping for like way longer than everybody else was tripping and i had a horrible time and a couple of weeks later like i did the same song and dance that i'd always done where it's like oh like i'm never gonna do that again like i said that so many times <laughs> Like, I'm never smoking weed again. Not since I, like, you know, woke up naked in a bush. Like, <laughs> weed made you wake up naked in a bush? Well, not just weed. I was going to say, you'd have to smoke a lot of weed to get that messed up. It was, uh, in the words of my friend who got absolutely hammered at a con when asked, uh, are you drunk or high? Both! <laughs> Both! Uh, yeah, there was, like, there's a couple of jokes in, like, recovery circles where it's, like, universal experiences that every single person in recovery seems to have for some reason it's like waking up half naked somewhere you do not recognize yeah uh there's a there's a ton of like jokes like that we call them uh war stories and we try not to share them in the context of like recovery meetings but we absolutely do laugh about it afterwards mm -hmm. because like that's something that i think differentiates a lot of people in sobriety from people that are like <laughs> I don't want to say cops, <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I feel like there's, like, <laughs> I got followed by an account the other day because I posted, like, this meme that was, like, a joint, and it was, like, the first, like, 45 minutes of the joint were, like, an existential crisis, and the last 10 minutes is, like, the devil trying to rip out your heart through your kneecaps, <laughs> and I was, like, this is why I quit smoking weed. <laughs> it made me hallucinate. It was so bad. Uh, just because I'm particularly sensitive. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that. There are people who are really sensitive to yeah. marijuana who have bad experiences right off the bat. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, and then, like, an account followed me that was like, stop smoking weed. And, like, all their posts are like, weed isn't cool, it's cancerous. And I'm like, you don't have to be like that. <laughs> I mean, like, I think that that's, like, the biggest thing is, like, when I went into recovery, I was afraid that it was going to be a bunch of people that are like, I don't drink because my father doesn't, it is a drunk. Yeah. But no, it's all people that are like, oh no, I was a complete fucking mess. Yeah. I mean, I do respect people. I know some people who are like, yeah, the alcoholism runs in my family and I just never really got into drinking, so it's just not a big thing for me. I just don't drink. And I have big respect for that. Like, Like, that takes a lot of commitment, yeah. Exactly. To just know, like, it's not for you and just never even get into the drinking culture, like. Oh, yeah. But when you're, like, in the drinking culture, it feels super judgmental. Right. Like, that's the thing that I think is the best thing about, like, recovery communities is that they are legitimately unable to be judgmental Mm -hmm. because they're like, yeah, I can't get mad at you for liking girls, like, if you're a girl because... I have been arrested 17 times <laughs> for streaking in public and have a couple of sex offender charges as a result of that. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, you're not going to judge me then. I, <laughs> Take it to that level, yeah, like. I think that's, like, one of my favorite, like, stories that I've heard is, like, so a lot of people talk about, like, rock bottom as a concept. Yeah. And they're like, oh, like, you have to reach rock bottom to, like, get to a point where, like, you get in recovery. And I had a sponsor really early on that told me it's not about reaching rock bottom because the true rock bottom is death. You can always die. Mm-hmm. You can always do something that, like, it's not all about near-death scrapes or, like, near-devastation scrapes. It sometimes rock bottom is death. And the true point when you need to start thinking about sobriety is when you decide that you've had enough of digging a hole. And you want to try to look for a ladder out. And so even though in a lot of, like, recovery circles, there's this culture of, like, oh, like, you know, my rock bottom was worse than your rock bottom. Uh, A lot of people think that that's a bullshit conversation to have because, like, rock bottom is rock bottom, man. Like, there's a certain point where we all decided that this was not good for us. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're all here together. So... I heard a story about, like, why it's so important to, you know take the chance you get and not wait for a worse opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because this guy that my friend knew initially got sober in, like, February-ish. And he was like, you know what would be really funny? Is if my sobriety date was 420. (laughs) So he was like, what if I see you guys in just, like, a handful of months? And they're like, yeah, dude, that'd be super funny. 420 comes by, nothing. We don't see this guy. Next 420 comes by. No guy. He's he's gone. And then a couple months after 420, <laughs> delivered to us from prison, uh. is the guy. He uh, basically came to naked on a police car. So that's how his, you know, because he was at rock bottom and he decided to recover. And then he was like, no, I'll take a break for a second and I'll come back. And he didn't come back, and he got way worse. So, like, that's the biggest problem with, like, this whole idea of, like, a true rock bottom. It's like, shit, that doesn't matter. If you have one drink and you decide that you are not the kind of person who can drink, like, a normal individual, that can be your rock bottom. Fuck it. Like, you don't have to wake up naked on a police car. It is better objectively. (laughs) Like, I'm one of the few people in my recovery community that had only... 
I didn't have any arrests, but I had a ticket for doing stupid things on campus. Mm. Uh, which thankfully I ended up getting solved. But like I ended up being on like the low end of people who had like violations. Like uh, my brother, for example, got arrested twice, maybe three times. Arresting meaning like booked. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the thing that he always has a pet peeve about. He's like, you know, you said you were arrested on campus, but really you were just ticketed on campus. <laughs> And I'm like, look, it was still a scary experience. Like, the cops patted me down and told me I was a criminal. Oh, like, it's, God. it's still scary. Yeah. But, like, thank God I ended up just doing community service and getting my shit together. Whereas, like, my brother, he ended up having probation. He had diversion and then probation. And he had to go through all sorts of stuff. And my brother didn't kill anyone, by the way. There are so many people in these recovery communities that are like, I have a friend who he's, like, the nicest guy ever. And he was like, yeah, I decided to turn my life around because I paralyzed this girl in a drunk driving accident. Oh, my God. And so, like, she doesn't want to talk to me. Like, I've tried to, like, you know, make amends with her. And, like, I respect that she doesn't want to talk to me because, like, what I did was absolutely terrible. And I have to live with that for the rest of my life. The fact that I completely, like, ruined this girl's life. The fact that I, like, paralyzed her is just going to be stuck with me forever. So... To fucking don't don't make it a pissing contest. If you're planning on like potentially getting sober one day, don't make it a pissing contest. Yeah. Like, like how bad can I be before I decide to stop? Exactly. Like the more important thing is that you find that you start looking for a way out rather than continue digging the hole. Yeah. So what is it like? This is something that I always think about when we get together at like house parties and stuff back mm-hmm. before COVID. We don't do mm-hmm. house parties during COVID. Um, just a disclaimer. But like, what is it like being around drunk people as a sober person? Like, I can only imagine it's very annoying. We're just gonna wait for her to pass. <laughs> Cats on the podcast. <laughs> so, uh, When I first got sober, I was so afraid that I was going to be, like, the boring friend now. (laughs) Like, I was so terrified. I was like, I don't know how to have fun without being drunk. Like, how am I going to do karaoke without having an excuse for doing karaoke? Okay, side note. People (laughs) who have to be wasted to do karaoke piss me off. Because I love karaoke. I love karaoke. I don't have to be drunk. I just love being the center of attention. I love hearing my own voice. Like, everyone's looking at me. I have great musical taste. Like, I fucking love karaoke, and I don't have to be drunk for it. It's people who have to be, like, falling down drunk to do karaoke kind of piss me off. No, I'm totally with you there. Like, I understand if you have anxiety and, like, you need, like, a little bit of social lubricant, but, like, you should you should love yourself for being attention-seeking. Like, I don't... I hate, like, this whole concept of a culture in which, like, you have to act like you're so modest. Like, if you want to be the center of attention, be the center of attention. It's not pathological. Yeah, you just... I, I don't have to be, like, sloppy, drunk bitch to, like, have that feeling of... Like, I don't have to be that way to have the self-confidence to go pursue this activity. Yeah. And I think it's sad that people feel the need to. Like, I don't really want to do this, but get me drunk and I'll do it. It's like, then just don't do it if you don't yeah. want to do it. <laughs> like that's like a that's like a personal issue. It's not like a matter of getting drunk. It's a matter of you have an issue that you need to address and it is that you feel embarrassed at, you know, being your authentic self. Right. And you feel like you can only be your authentic self when you have alcohol in your system. Yeah. So, I initially thought that I was going to be like 
the one person that would be like dancing awkwardly around everybody else having a good time. But I shortly realized that I had this wonderful ability as the only sober person. And that ability is being party mom. (laughs) Because there's something that's distinctly wonderful about being universally loved. Like I remember like my brother used to host like ragers and I would come home and I would like see these ragers happening and I would like see all like these like girls that were like completely drunk and I'm like, okay, so who sees a spinning room? And like six hands would go up in the air and I'd be like, follow me. And we would all like hold each other's hair back while they were like throwing up in the toilet and I would get them some bread and I would tuck them in and I'd be like, sleep this off, we'll get you home. Yeah. And there's something really nice about being in that position where you can care for people because like, then they're like, like, you're the angel. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what drunk <laughs> girls do. You're an angel. I love you. You're so beautiful. I like, love talk about girls. being the center of attention when you're party mom. Yeah. Like, you're like, you owe me. But, like, not really. Like, I won't make do on that. But, like, yes. But I like, have the power. <laughs> on the opposite side of that, I think about when I was, like, I didn't, I got alcohol poisoning a couple times in high school. So, I didn't drink again until I was legally able to. So, when I was, like, 19, I was hanging out with slightly older people. Mm-hmm. And I was dating this guy, and his house, they'd have the same house party, like, every weekend. It's the same party, the same people, doing the same shit. And I'd be there because I was like, I want to hang out, but I'm the only one not drinking. That sounds like a Groundhog Day scenario. It was, it was like, exactly. So I'd be sitting on the couch, and the same guy would be telling me the same story that he's told me every weekend for a month. And I'm just like, God, I never want to be like this. Like, and, like, this guy was the kind of guy that's like, never touch my records. When I put the record on, never touch it. But he'd be so shit-faced that I'd be like, I'm sick of this, I'm changing the record, and he'd never notice, and I felt like I was getting away with something. <laughs> but I'm just like, I'm sick of listening to the same shit every weekend here, and your friend fucking talk about this same thing over and over again. Like, I was like, I'm done with this, I cannot do this anymore. So, like, on the opposite end of that spectrum of, like, it's fun to take care of people, sometimes it's just like, God, I'm done, like, I'm done with you guys. Like, you're all a mess, and I can't handle it anymore. Oh, Maybe yeah. you're just a more patient person than I am, I think. I'm kind of patient, but I think that also some of it is that I curate my audience because I've definitely been in a room with a drunk-ass motherfucker who I did not want to talk to. And so many of those dudes go into recovery. (laughs) There is a rule in recovery circles where girls don't talk to guys and guys don't talk to girls. And Mm -hmm. this isn't because of, like, some old sexism nonsense. It's because when guys start seeing a girl in a recovery circle, they think one of two things. Either I'm going to be her savior or she's going to be my savior. Mm. And this is colloquially referred to as 13th stepping. <laughs> it's 12 steps. 13th step is fucking somebody in a 12-step program. <laughs> so, like, there's so many guys that I've met that, like, I was not forbidden from talking to dudes being on the dude spectrum myself. But my sponsor said that if anybody asks, she's super strict and refuses to let me talk to guys. Mm-hmm. Because there were so many dudes that, like, I'd be in a room with them, and then they'd be talking about, like, oh, like, you know, I, as a kinkster, and I'd be like, I do not want to have this conversation with you. I do, like, I would mention offhandedly some fun fact about human biology, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, she's a freak, and I'd be like, (laughs) absolutely not. Oh, my God. (laughs) But, yeah, so, like. Kinkster. Kinkster is not a sexy word. (laughs) To me, I'm sorry. That phrase is kind of childish. Oh, yeah. Fucking these dudes are kind of childish. Yeah. And they never have, like, good sensibility. Like, they'll, like, like, the way that I ended up starting one conversation, I was like, 
you know, a lot of people don't realize that, like, the clitoris is actually a really incredible organ that, like, goes around. Like, it's not just the external part. So I was talking about it from a biological perspective, as I am wont to do. Yeah. And this guy, what he heard coming from my mouth is, I'm a sex addict who loves sex and having sex. <laughs> and I love it when dudes don't know how to pleasure me. <laughs> like, like, this dude apparently heard all of that coming from me. So it's, like, so irritating. So I think absolutely some of it is the audience that you're in, sober yeah. or drunk. There are some guys that just are terrible. Yeah, well, a lot of guys. Why are men? That's my friend, men? As my friend Blair would say, why are men? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, what was I going to... We were on the topic of... Like, how it is to be sober around drunk people. And now you're talking <laughs> about how it is to be sober around other sober people, which apparently can also be equally bad <laughs> oh yeah i mean have you ever been, have you ever been to a dry wedding with boring people of course it can be bad <laughs> that was the, the i think the comment that ended up getting me kicked out of that group was i was like if you can't be a fun person without being shit-faced you might be boring yeah exactly but um so being sober around drunk people is actually not all that bad because like part of it is that i had to learn to let go myself without alcohol because i used to be like reserved and then the second that the alcohol hit my system my shirt was no longer on my body <laughs> and it was a very black and white sort of uh situation so being the only sober person around drunk people i had this weird experience where i was like i had this weird experience where i was like these people are drunk and therefore don't necessarily care about like how socially respectable i am but at the same time i'm not drunk and I care about how socially respectable I am. So I had to kind of, like, make peace with the fact that what was restricting me from having fun and letting go wasn't the alcohol. It was my perception of myself. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I thought that sobriety was going to make me less fun of a person. But it made me way more fun of a person because it made me the kind of person that doesn't need to get drunk to be a fun person. That's exactly like I said, talked about like uh, psychedelics. People are like, again, like, oh, to open your third eye and to be a more loving person, you really got to trip. And I'm like, I don't like, you not don't. that I feel like I've fully opened my third eye, but just like I have spent a lot of time ex examining spirituality during quarantine. And I'm like, I can be an open hearted, loving person and not need to be on a drug to do it or like I can be a fun person and not have to be drunk to do it because a lot of folks started drinking a lot in quarantine yes and I tried <laughs> I was like I'm gonna be that person I want to drink a lot because Michael has a few beers every night like but for me it's just like I had a drink and now I feel sick and sleepy and I am not fun like at all and I think that like as somebody who's kind of been on both ends of that because one part of recovery is that you end up doing a lot of meditation uh that's one of the interesting things is that recovery programs like 12-step programs were made by lay people. Mm -hmm. Like the people who made these programs were just normal dudes. That like what like one of the guys that like is revered in AA circles was literally just a businessman from Wall Street that became a raging alcoholic and then talked to a guy who stopped being a raging alcoholic and he was like, "What? You can do that?" <laughs> in the 1930s. And then he started talking to other alcoholics and they like hundreds of them were like, we should write a book on how we did it. So there were no doctors consulted really in the development of a 12 step program, which I think is fascinating yeah. because as somebody in psychology, as somebody who's been tangential to the medical field, I know what it's like to like, like the people in AA programs will be like calling alcoholism a sort of allergy 
And I'm like, oh, God, like, that's not right. But at the same time, like, I understand why these lay people are saying it's an allergy is because they're saying that they have a specific inability to drink alcohol. So it's really fascinating from that perspective. And the way that this relates to um, uh, opening your third eye is that the sort of things that these people talk about is they talk about meditation, they talk about Buddhist practices, and they talk about all of these sorts of things that like aren't necessarily appreciated in mainstream medicine as much. Uh, and the only other time that I've seen similar tactics enter mainstream medicine has been through the, favor my, the work of my favorite uh, psych person, uh, Marshall Linehan. Mm -hmm. Dr. Linehan, she's a doctor with BPD herself. And she ended up creating dialectical behavioral therapy. Which I did during quarantine. So that goes <laughs> hand in hand with my spiritual aspect. Is, I love DBT. Even yeah. if you don't have BPD or DPD or any number of like personality disorders, you can learn so much from DBT. Because it's really just an exercise in mentally ill people loving themselves. Loving yourself and then just like taking time to examine your emotions rather than just engaging them or mm -hmm. trying to stuff them. Like really just allowing yourself to feel and be at peace with them, which is a huge part of like what Ram Dass talks about and just mm -hmm. like being present fully in every moment, regardless of whether that's a good moment or a bad moment. Exactly. And I think that there is so much of a distinction between a therapy made for mentally ill people by mentally ill people like AA and like DBT versus <laughs> a therapy made by mentally well people for mentally ill people like the most classic example i can think of is aba applied behavioral analysis mm -hmm. uh, where they basically use behavioral training like with cats and dogs to turn autistic kids into quote-unquote full humans mm -hmm. uh and like that is like you can tell that that was a therapy that was made by people who weren't autistic because it's not about self-love it's all about correcting behavior i was gonna say like the idea of like dbt doesn't aim to fix you like there's no end goal necessarily with dbt rather than like except for like learning to regulate your emotions a little bit better but mm -hmm. you can't like finish D like you don't ever just get you finish your workbook but you never stop doing it and it's like there's no end goal in the same way i think is aba where it's like you're fixed now bye exactly and i would say that the same thing applies to 12-step programs where the whole thing is that once you get to the 12th step the whole thing is that you become a sponsor mm -hmm. and you become a guide for others but as somebody who's been a sponsor, that's not the end at all. Being a sponsor is just knowing the 12 steps and being able to guide another person through those 12 steps. There are people, I've heard this phrase said by somebody and it really stuck with me. There are people with three months of sobriety that are more sober than people with three years of sobriety. Because if you don't continue practicing these coping skills, because that's what we're learning in both DBT and in 12-step programs, is coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And you're learning how to regulate your emotions. And you're learning how to cope with the fact that you, <laughs> that you can have alcohol. I think the worst step is steps four, five, and six. Because what you do is you write down everybody that you hate, which is the fun part. You're like, and I hate this bitch, and I hate this, and this bitch owes me money. <laughs> <laughs> like, you'll be writing all that down, and then your sponsor comes back to you with, oh, by the way, there's two more columns on the worksheet. The first column is my part, <laughs> and the next column is character defects that have been exposed as a result of this resentment. And you're like, fuck! <laughs> and the worst part of it all is you can't be drunk while doing this. 
Like, it would be so much easier if I was like, and I'm a piece of shit who doesn't deserve love. But no, I gotta be like, I struggle with uh, self control. <laughs> I struggle with being controlling of others, even though I'm trying to help them. So, like, I think that that's like the this sort of thing that's like it's the same in DBT where you're basically calling yourself out on your own bullshit exactly. a lot. And that's what I think is probably the next wave of mental health is going moving away from things where it's like and how does that make you feel? Like sort of like traditional psychotherapy and especially Freudian stuff. Yeah. I could talk about Freud for so long. <laughs> talk about Freud where you say one thing and mean your mother. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, in my psych degree, uh, there have been a lot of moments where a teacher has said, and what would Freud say about this? And I've said, something about wanting to fuck your mom. And the teacher has said, yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like, I think that the next wave of mental health is going to move so much further away from, you know, traditional mental health experiences and more into... What is it that mentally ill people are teaching themselves? Like, what can we learn from professionals with personality disorders and professionals on the autism spectrum and professionals with addictive disorders? Uh, And you can go to conferences for this stuff. I ended up going to a collegiate conference for people in recovery. And there were two basic parts. There were researchers on recovery and then there were college students in recovery. And those are the two audiences that came to this conference. It was a fascinating experience because, you know, we talk in these recovery meetings about, you know, how do we solve our own problems as lay people? And then scientists are like, no, that's a legit thing. Like everybody's been saying this. So maybe we should do more research into it. Mm -hmm. So... It's fascinating. I also feel like if we're going to talk about recovery programs, there is one big piece of controversy in the field that I kind of want to address. Okay. There's a lot of people that are like, oh, I went to an AA meeting and it was super religious. Or, oh, I went to an AA meeting and it was super creepy. And then they end up generalizing, oh, that means AA is super, like, Christian and, like, anti-gay. Or, oh, that means that, like, AA is full of, like, pedophiles or whatever. AA meetings aren't standardized. <laughs> so there was a there was a court case in which this guy went to an AA meeting and he said he was going to kill his girlfriend. And then he went and killed his girlfriend. So the family of the girlfriend tried to sue AA. Mm-hmm. And it didn't go through because AA is not centralized. The AA right. central office prints books. And that's all they do. They aren't, like, spiritual leaders. It's literally just dudes printing books that were written by 100 people, like, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So you can't exactly generalize one experience very well from recovery programs, which is why we're encouraged to not talk about A is this way or O and A is this way, but rather to talk about I had an experience while I was in recovery where this and that. So... If you're considering going through recovery and you're like, oh, but I heard from a friend that they, like the meeting that they went to was like super creepy. There's so many creepy meetings in my town. <laughs> There's like, if you talk to me and you're like, I want to go to an AA meeting, I'll be like, don't go to this one. <laughs> don't go to this one. Because there's so many of them, right? Yeah, there's so many because <laughs> there's a phrase that it goes, all it takes to make an AA meeting is two alcoholics and a pot of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can make your own meeting, because really the point of AA is you discuss the book that you all read, 
And then you're like, well, as a fucked up citizen, (laughs) this is my experience. So if you're considering going into a recovery program, be critical of it. Be, you don't have to like love the first meeting that you go to. You don't have to vibe with everybody. And if something is like harmful for you, if you're going to a meeting where people are telling you to like get off your meds, leave. Nobody in that meeting is a professional. (laughs) The good thing about recovery meetings is that they can introduce you to other people in recovery and they can introduce you to ideas that you never heard of. But they are by no means a professional environment. So don't idolize AA and don't demonize AA. AA is its own enigma. AA is an amorphous being. (laughs) So that would be my biggest sort of thing I have to say about responsibility that I feel like I have to say is kind of somebody who's representing recovery right now Mm -hmm. is it's weird. (laughs) Is that like, would that be your number one tip to somebody who's looking to get sober is to just keep trying if you don't find the meeting that's for you? Yeah. Like, and there's so many meetings out there. Like I have a very good friend who she was going to a meeting and she's an atheist. And one of the first steps of AA is understanding that there's a higher power. Mm -hmm. And the first meeting that she went to, they were like, and that higher power is Jesus Christ. (laughs) And she was like, I cannot. And so she goes to another meeting and they're like, look, the whole point of that message is that you have to believe that you're not the center of the universe. Right. My higher power is the court system (laughs) because the court system will put my ass back in jail if I don't keep to my program. (laughs) So, like, there's so much variety between the different meetings. Like, if you find a meeting you go to and everybody there is, like, not vibing with you, leave. Go do something else. If you go, if you are afraid that AA is going to be super Christian and judgy, don't worry. There's plenty of, like, specifically gay AA groups. There's plenty of, like, AA groups that are a-religious entirely. There's so many kinds of people and there's so many kinds of AA meetings. And I think that that's the one thing that AA has over therapists is that there's so many more AA meetings than there are therapists. Yeah, and they're free. <laughs> and they're free. <laughs> I had somebody tell me, like, AA is like a cult scam, blah, blah, blah. And I was like... What are they scamming you out of? Nothing. Like, <laughs> like not to... Like, somebody asked me if I was drinking the Kool-Aid, and I was like, I want to specify two things. One, AA is donation-based, and that's specifically to get spaces. So if you go to an AA meeting and they pass around a donation basket, you, A, don't have to donate anything, and B, all of that money goes to the church basement. Right. Like, the meeting space reservation is where that money is going. Second of all, the books that you buy from, like, Central AA are, like, super cheap. Like, you can buy a Bible for, like, $100. Like, like a Christian Bible from a bookstore. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, an AA Big Book, which is, like, their kind of doctrine, is, like, 20 bucks. They, like, print those at, like, at cost, basically. Mm -hmm. Just to, you know, keep everything going. So AA is, like, specifically made to be affordable. And that's something that I feel like a lot of people don't understand about those sorts of programs is, like, they're definitely not for profit at all. Right. (laughs) Um, But, yeah.
Thank you so much to Ren for being on again. Always love having them on the show. Uh, Thank you to my fiance, Michael Anderson, for composing our intro music. And thank you to you for listening. If you have a story you'd like to share on Odds and Friends, feel free to shoot me a line on Facebook or send me an email at noelle.blood at gmail.com. That's N-O-E-L-L-E dot B-L-O-O-D at gmail.com. And we'll see what we can do about getting you on the air. Thanks so much. Catch you next time.